Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's how you quantify what a success is. Like, I've had loads of... The- the more I do it, the more I realise the best bits are the bits when you're when you're enjoying the process and then really yeah. having. We're so lucky that I'm in a job that when it's going well, the end result is laughter. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Balancing Acts. In this conversation, I talk to writer, executive producer, and founder of the production company Happy Tramp, Neil Webster. Perfect. Hello, I'm Steve Whiteley and welcome to Balancing Acts, a series of conversations with an array of creatives. We talk about their journey, the struggles they faced whilst progressing their career, strategies they use to unlock their creativity, how they balance their career with their personal lives, what impact this has had on their mental health and lots more. In 2013, Neil co-founded the comedy drama production company Happy Tramp with director Ben Palmer. They produced sitcom series for BBC One, sketch shows for BBC Two, BAFTA-nominated short film, and a number of half-hour films for Sky Arts Urban Myths, two of which were nominated for an international Emmy. In 2017, Neil decided he had enough of London and relocated to the Highlands of Scotland, where he established Happy Tramp North. They've since produced the highly acclaimed drama Guilt for BBC Two, as well as the sitcom series Semi-Detached, also for BBC Two, starring Lee Mack. And before setting up Happy Tramp, Neil co-founded the legendary comedy production company Zepatron, where he worked as a creative director from 2000 until 2012, overseeing writing, producing, exec producing, developing talent, dealing with commissioners, and uh, as you'll hear, having lots of fun along the way. In addition to all things TV-related, Neil co-hosts the podcast series I Can't Believe It's Not Buddha with uh, Lee Mack, where they discuss uh, all things... Buddhist related and that's something um, the two of us talk about in greater detail in this conversation and as always if you like this episode if you like Balancing Acts the series then please do rate and review us on Apple give us the five stars mate it's very you know it does wonders for my ego not that obviously I don't have an ego as, as you'll hear through this conversation we're talking about all things Buddhist related I've got rid of it it's gone it's completely gone but um, it's just nice isn't it it's always nice it's as nice as a child to receive um, stars for doing good things you know my mum would put a little star on the fridge every time I behave myself, which wasn't very often. I was a very, very naughty kid. Anyway, I digress. And also, if you would like to be part of the newsletter, you can subscribe to that on Steve Whiteley, W-H-I-T-E-L-E-Y.co. Sign up there to the newsletter and uh, won't bombard you. Just, you know, giving you just a little reminder every now and then when we have a new conversation out on the podcast. So without further ado, over to Neil Webster. Perfect. 
You're used to the podcast format now, aren't you? Because you you, you and Lee Mack have got, I can't believe yeah. it's not Buddha, which, yeah. it, which I listen to and um, it's a lot of fun. Oh. I, I can imagine it must be a really nice thing to be doing some of that with one of your close pals. Yeah, no, it's good. I like I I um I do really enjoy it. It's kind of stumbled into existence, which is good because anything that we plan too much, we end up falling out over. So um <laughs> it's quite nice to do a thing. We're both like, you know, it's come we we have talked about I did a podcast I did a podcast pilot of my own about three years ago called The Podcast from the End of the World. Okay. And the kind of premise was that I will get on to like the reason I live, who I live and all that stuff. But the premise was that the world had ended. Who knew? And um, uh, each week within the confines of this, of this show, I leave my bunker, find a straggling survivor, bring them back to my bunker, ask them what they miss the most from pre-Armageddon and what they like the most post-Armageddon. And through their answers, I decide whether to, let them stay in the bunker or um, I kill them. Nice. Uh, and the idea was that I killed my guest every week. Okay. So I did, I did a pilot with, I did it with Lee and I went around to his house and we recorded it and we really enjoyed it. And I put it all together and then I thought, oh, you know, not that. Like I wanted to try doing one, but I wasn't that bothered about how it came out. It was fun. And then for about two years we went, that was good that. We had really good fun doing that. We should do a podcast. And then we both said, but we don't want to do a podcast about a thing that we're not interested in yeah and so it was a weird thing like like kind of in tandem with that we've both been getting into buddhism we both gave up drinking over the years and all of those things and then one day we went that's all we kind of talk about so if we're going to try a podcast let's do it on that Mm. and so it's kind of nice although you know like everything it flirts between the line of fun and work yes yes as does all these things because um you underestimate how much work goes into making a podcast lee does certainly <laughs> <laughs> weekly <laughs> but that's kind of also kind of the dynamic of the podcast so before we because obviously i want to get onto the the buddhist the buddhist chat oh um, yeah of course that's what um our, our link what, is what i'm known for yeah so our <laughs> link is mark bootshoss and he said oh he's he's one of you lot to me yeah. um so you guys should chat um, so very, very uh, interested to find out your path uh, into yeah. all things uh, Buddhahood. Um, yeah, man. But um, just to kick things off then, so did you start off writing for stand-ups or in terms of your career or did you, because I know you, you're working on the 11 o'clock show, were you writing for stand-ups yeah. prior to doing that? I was only writing for Lee. Okay. So I met, I was, uh, I did like a very quick history. I did a, a pop music degree in Salford and I lasted about three months which I thought qualified me pop music yeah it was uh Salford I don't know what it's called now it was Salford Tech then it was kind of set up by Paul McCartney it was pre the music institute right and it's set up by George Martin on the first day we had a weird visit to the Coronation Street set with George Martin and none of it made any sense (laughs) um but I (laughs) I did this course and I lasted about three months and then dropped out which I thought made was like made me qualified to be a rock star, right? That's kind of the point. You don't finish the course. Yeah. But anyway, I did that, came back to, I was, that was up in Manchester in Salford. And then um, came back, went, got onto a drama degree, not a brilliant one, but an all right one. 
they make me say that. No, um, and uh, I met Lee on that, and he started doing stand up. And so over the course of that, those three years, we got to know each other. We did an Edinburgh show together. He would like one, so you think you're funny in like mid nineties, and then we did a little sketch show together, which was okay. the only time I've ever performed, uh, thankfully. And then he went on and was uh, got like was doing more and more. Got a show called Gas on Channel Four, and I was working for a record company because I was still going to be a rock star at that point. Uh, and then he, I was get, I was running a little recording studio for the for the record company, and I was getting paid like insanely low amounts of money. And he got a job and said, "Oh, well, they're looking for joke writers. They want. They've given me some joke writers to make this show. It's called Gas, and it was a stand-up show." And they said, "He said, oh, I've asked if you can come and do it." And like now, subsequently, being a producer for how many years, it's like the last thing you ever want to hear. Whenever someone new comes and goes, "Yeah, my mate's going to write it with me." Yeah, go, Don't yeah. worry, we've got people that can do that. People who know what they're talking about. Yeah. But he got me in for a few weeks, and I made like it wasn't Richie's. But it was about four months of my money at the record company, which okay. is more a reflection on the record company money than the <laughs> than the telly money. Uh, and then I did that, and then I did a second series. Went back to the record company, did the second series, and then made a little show. Got on the eleven o'clock show. Went. I heard through a friend of a friend they were looking for writers, and I made a little show reel. And um, I took it to Harry Thompson, who was the kind of god of that show when it started. The producer. Um, he uh, he got my tape. And got me into this is the first tape I've had that's made me laugh for ages. And the thing he was referencing was a joke that I hadn't written, but I was in the <laughs> background of that Lee had written. So I thought, oh, I'll put that in there because I'm in it. Right. And so I got this gig. <laughs> My whole career was a lie. I got this gig based on a joke I didn't write. Fake it you make at, it. Yeah. And then I was on the 11 o'clock show for like three or four years. And what was that experience like? Oh, it was like, I can't really remember. So look, no, it was mental. It was properly mental. It was um, the weird thing was that was my only experience of telly, and I just thought, well, this is what telly is like. It's like you. There was me and three other, three then four other main writers. We were like the kind of core writers of the show. And there's a guy called Peter Holmes who runs Zepatron now. Who are, we all started together after after Talkback after Eleven O'clock Show. Uh, ben Cordell, Peter Holmes, me, um, a guy called Charlie Skelton, and a guy called Charlie Brooker. And so we were the kind of core writing team who were like, would write every day. You get in in the morning, you'd write all day. Whatever shit you wrote ended up on telly that night, which you can imagine Incredible. the bar is so low. It was like stuff would go out and you go, like, that's, that's on television. We said awful things about people that weren't really vetted in any way. Like they had a kind of Channel 4 um, lawyer there the whole time, but it was such a barrage of filth and low rent jokes that they could only stop a certain amount of it going out without there being nothing on the show um so we did that for like i did three series i think three or four three series of that and they were long series they were like 11 12 week runs three nights a week and you'd, you'd work from like six in the morning till the bar icb closed at midnight and then you go back often ben cordell had a had a habit of getting drunk on going back to the kind of props cupboard and just sleeping on Sasha's Ali G costumes. <laughs> I don't think anyone ever knew that. <laughs> it was just, it was like, it was an amazing place because it was a, everybody who I know in telly now worked on that show and it was just wow. all these 20 somethings kind of let loose. What an incredible experience. And 
obviously during that, as you said, Sasha was on that show and, yeah. and Ricky was on that show. Mm. You looking at those guys sort of thinking, yeah. these Ricky, guys, what do you mean, no. I thought you said nah straight away before I even questioned. Like nah, nah, not him. In rate of mate. Did you look at those guys and and think like from the off? Yeah, these guys are they've got it. I don't think anybody really knew anything. Like okay, it was right. just talk about kind of imposter syndrome. I was there going, I have no idea what what I'm doing here. Like I was in no position to judge anybody, or I had like. Like, I remember the first time we watched an Ali G tape came in and you just go, this is really funny. Like, this is just, you just go, this is really funny. But then also there'd be other tapes that come in and you go, this is really funny. A guy's dressed up as a toucan and run onto a cricket pitch. That's funny. With the music to can play that game. That was, you go, oh, that's funny. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, no, but he was obviously, like, it became really apparent really quickly on that show that people had only ever watched it for the last four minutes which is when we put the, when they put the Ali G bit on, you know, yeah. trail it all the way through the show to keep people watching. But yeah, that was brilliant. And then Ricky kind of came and went a lot. He did a bit and then went away and did a bit and then went away. And like, I remember being in the bar with him and I think Lee had been a guest on the show that week. And I remember Ricky sitting there and I was like, I was never, I wasn't like close to Ricky. It was all like a kind of gang of us and stuff. And Ricky going, God, I'm 35 now. I think, I think I've missed my opportunity. And you go, God, man, like <laughs> now you go, yeah, well, obviously that wasn't the case. But yeah, no, it was, um, it was like a terrible show. With you know, it spawned, yeah, it spawned some amazing people. Yeah. What a great sort of accidental way into comedy. Mm. Yeah. It was kind of terrifying though. It was, it was brilliant and terrifying. Cause you just think there were a lot of people there who'd come from those big gang shows, like the big breakfast and stuff. Yeah. So they were kind of used to, it was quite like, it was quite rough and ready. It was a bit like going to Borstal. It was a bit like you, there were people that were, you get people who would be bullied quite quickly. <laughs> people who would be in the gang, people who'd be out of the gang. They just had a, quite a feral feeling to it. So it was kind of good, but also you just think, God, like one wrong move. <laughs> I'm sunk here. <laughs> but yeah, it was good fun. So after that experience, did you directly go on to set up Zepatron then? Co-found Zepatron straight after? Yeah. Okay. So there was five or six of us who had been part of like that talk. There was a massive talk about development that led to the 11 o'clock show. So we've been there six months. Like, like it's insane now that they channel four paid for like six months development. And there were four writers. That was me, Peter, Ben and Charlie Skelton. And we basically got paid for six months to sit in the talkback offices and think about what a show might be like. And we were just like, honestly, we're just drunk from like midday. We'd go out and drink loads of wine at lunch and play the card game Hearts for hours. Then write some really terrible sketches and do that for six months. So they, we'd kind of become a family before it had started in a right. weird way. Um, and then three years down the line, we were still like, like in our early 20s, I was probably 24, 25. And we'd seen so many producers come through, like day producers and VT producers. And some of them were brilliant. But some of them were absolutely terrible, like telly, right? Um, and so we thought, oh, how hard can it be to run a company? So that's really hard. But at that point, we went, oh, we're just going to start our own company. And so we set up Zepatron, and that was me. That ended up being me, Peter, Ben, Char all these names, Charlie Brooker, and a couple other people that kind of went quite quickly after we set up. And uh, 
we went to see Peter Bazalgette, who ran Endemol at the time, and said, do you want to leave Endemol and become the chairman of our company? And he went, no, you're all right. I've got a company, thanks. We're doing all right. But do you want to come and sit in our basement and we'll give you a bit of seed money and see how you get on? And that's how we started. We started Zephyr in 2000. So from that place of starting as a writer, then you go and set up your, your company and mm. then you start producing, you know, in your own right and, and EPing. Was that a... Was that a difficult transition to go from that place where you've just been really... having a laugh and, and now you've sort of got a business side of, you know, having well, look, overlooking that sort of stuff as well? We never really had a business, if I'm honest. We were okay. kind of, we, should I say, uh, yeah, look, when we started, they said, come up with a five-year plan. Okay. And we came up with a five-year plan that had, at the end of it, we were going <laughs> to, our five-year plan was at the end, was going to end with launching a theme park. And this is what we put in the final plan. And our, yeah, yeah, totally. And we said, okay. like, some of it, oddly, some of it in the... Like, Did you actually joke. put that in the plan? You put it in the the plan. whole plan was in five years' time. They went, they said, all we want to see from you is ambition. So don't hold back. So we went, yeah, okay, fine. Leave it with us. Right, we're going to have a theme park in 2005. Um, we honestly, and there's some stuff in innovations, which was the brand thing that was like the innovations catalog that Brooker had come up with that we made into a TV show that we basically genuinely, I think it was one of Brooker's ideas, obviously um, came up with Twitter on one of these things as a joke, like this thing where you people post up in a, a sentence or less what they're up to. And it was like a joke thing that buzzes and tells you what some actor, some actors just gone and bought some bread, which we thought was hilarious at the time. And obviously, but so this business plan was five years, we had, uh, yeah, we had the theme park at the end. We were called, we were called Tron Pipe then rather than Zeppotron. Okay. Because that's what we called the internet was the Tron Pipe. Everything gets shoved up the Tron Pipe eventually. And they said, well, you can't have that name. It's ludicrous. We went, all right, we'll choose the least funny Marks, least funny Marks brother. And we called it Zeppotron instead. So it's our favorite film of the future with the least funny Marks brother to keep expectations low. So that was the, that was the plan. We had, um, oh, uh, we had on the front of the, on the front of the five-year proposal, completely unreferenced, we had a picture of the Yorkshire Ripper, and no one ever asked us why we did that. <laughs> wow! So it was just nuts. It was like um, it was like the whole running the company was a massive piss take. Do you think you could get away doing that today? Of course not. Like no. I, d I don't think so. I just think it was also we were seen as all oh, because of Charlie, because Charlie had done this site TV Go Home, okay. which is how the Eleven O'clock Show had found him. And it was, you know, it's a fake listings of a kind of Radio Times thing that doesn't really exist now. But um, it was brilliant and it was really funny. There's loads of ideas. Oh, like so many TV producers subsequently said, oh, we just plundered that. And like touch the truck was like a Charlie joke, you know, all of these weird shows. And so because he'd run his own website and then we, then he was in 11 o'clock show then. We started. They just thought we were we were like these future kids who knew what the internet was, and we were just luddites. Like we were the least technical people, but they they were much older than us. We'd have a board meeting every month where we'd realise we're never making any money. We weren't EPs. There's no way we could EP a show. And we thought, oh, we worked out pretty quickly that all their meetings were really dry. So as long as we made them laugh, they would kind of wouldn't say anything till the next month. They go, what's on your slate? We couldn't get meetings anywhere. So yeah, so we weren't really peeing at all, to be honest. We didn't. We, the first show we did that was the big show that kind of kept us going was eight out of ten cats, and we didn't EP that. Like, how did you get that one away then? Someone more senior in the building probably pitched it. Probably Tim Hinks, who was like 
is our mate and was running pretty much running it by then. I think he probably pitched it. I don't even know if we had the idea, if I'm honest, because it's terrible on it. I, don't, I can't remember. But um, I don't think, I definitely didn't. I'm not that smart. Um, and then that kind of bankrolled us for a few years until other things. Then we started doing, and we'd all been kind of script writers. So we all ended up doing a lot more entertainment stuff because you're at Endemol. Okay. And so you do some script stuff, but then, you know, I did a shiny floor Saturday night show with Bradley Walsh, which like I really enjoyed doing at the time, but it wasn't what I was, what I thought I was going to do. So you were happy to park the scripted side of things to focus on that at that time? For a while, yeah. Like I was happy to do it because it was a job and it was quite, and I was still in a room with the same three or four mates. Okay. And it got a bit harder as time went on because, you know, the demands of actually having a company starts. But there was always this idea with Zeppertron that they hated that we loved, that we were like this kind of socialist collective. So when we went there, we went, we're all going to get paid the same. We're all going to have the same title. It's going to be great because anyone comes up, we had this idea that if you're in a room and you come up with ideas, like someone could come up with the idea, but someone could add one bit to it. And the moment you start going, that's my idea, it makes the room unworkable mm. because you go, well, if that's your idea, you go and finish it then. Because if you like, then you're taking ownership and ultimately you're taking the money from that, you know. So for a long time, the idea was that we all got paid the same regardless of who came up with what. And I don't think Endemol liked that very much because I don't think that, I don't think many people, you know, it's not a, people like to carve things out and go, where's the value in this thing? And um, ultimately, I suppose, then Charlie got famous, rightfully so. And then like one day, I think we're all sitting there. I think Charlie might've been on like the 10 o'clock show or a version of one of those shows. And he's a kind of host of it. And I think he's going, I'm getting paid the same as you three who are just sitting here staring into space all day. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not. And there's all these other people on the show that are getting paid a fortune. <laughs> and so, yeah, at that point, you kind of go, yeah, I think this, this model doesn't really work anymore. And so, then did, did it become more of a serious outfit from then onwards? Was, that, was it more business orientated? It was all, yeah, it always kind of was like slid that way. Like we were kind of running it. And then Annabelle, who now runs all the stuff with Charlie, who have got a company together, she came in and was, like she kind of whipped us into shape. She was like, was she a producer at the time? Well, I don't know. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't know. She wasn't like a TV producer. She was. I think she was more business. And then, okay. But she obviously had all of that kind of skill set. But I think she'd come from a business background. And I think they gone. There's those like blokes we don't quite know what to do with, and they're making some funny shows. We made a show called Space Cadets, which is probably a whole other discussion. Which was this huge attempt at fooling people that we'd taken them into space. Whenever she got involved before that and really helped get that made. And I think there was a level of, she's just smart, just, just good at presenting in a room and going, we're going to trust these people with all this money to make this thing. And I don't think you would have trusted some of us at that point. So they kind of moved that way. But then we all, got, we all grew up and we all got better at it and it got less fun. Yeah, I can imagine. God, that sounds like such a fun experience such a fun it way wasn't. of doing it well it i just mean in terms of like you know a band a band of mates who just decide to just set up a company and you just sort of i don't know yeah, i just i feel like now it's like a very not cynical but it's quite a definitive thing you go right we're going to set up a production company and we're going to look for our first commission and it's like quite a professional yeah. thing whereas you guys because you started so young you could afford yeah. to have a bit of fun with it for a while yeah like there was all kinds of stupid ideas when we first started like i'm sure i don't know oh, who cares no one doesn't matter anyway, but I remember when I think I just read that um, 
that book on the start, like how grand when our schemes, that book on what's the, um, the book on Hollywood that's about, oh, about the rise of Hollywood. And it's, it's called something, oh, it's got two film references, like Raging Bulls, something, something, but it's not that. I mean, yeah. Uh, and I just read that and I went, yeah, it's great. We're going to set up at Endemon. We're in the roof of this building and in Tottenham Court Road. And I went, why don't we just buy like a massive, a massive jar of grass? And whoever wants to go. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, yeah, this is going to be great. We're going to, and you go, no, that doesn't work. We went out and like, yeah, let's get some table football and some grass. It'd be great. But that was, you know, all bullshit. But um, yeah, so it was kind of fun, but it was also... It was fun at first, and it was fun. Like it's still running now, and I still work for Zebratron quite a lot. Okay. Um, and there's still a lot of my mates are there, and I love them, and it's great. Um, so it's still a, it's it's a different it's definitely a different company now than the yeah. one that was bashing about. Okay, and and we, at the time, were you also then writing for stand-ups whilst you were producing and and EPing, etc.? Um, yeah, not a massive amount. Like stuff within, like we were doing stuff within Zebratron, and then we made like sketch shows and stuff. And okay other bits and bobs so there's still writing going on but not a huge amount and then i was doing bits and bobs with lee outside of zep so a bit of writing for a tour or some stuff like that but there was there was stuff like you didn't a lot of gag writing in rooms so a lot of stuff early on in the writing room for jimmy carl on eight out of ten and and then i've uh you know jason manford would host the things he'd write some stuff with him and we did some stuff with um all of that kind of generation stand-ups and then probably the one that for me that i've stuck with is writing for frankie boyle and okay. So I still now write on um, New World Order, which is my favourite thing to write on. And is that a collaborative process between you both? Not just me. Uh, No, it's made. Well, Charlie Skelton, who goes way back to the 11 o'clock show, he's like the script editor and Charlie and Frankie are like the proper brains. Okay. And then I'm in the room with them. I I often think I'm in there as a foil. If if it kind of, if it... (laughs) If I understand what's going on, there's a chance it might <laughs> it might be at a level that they're they're both so like smart and funny. Um so but it's it's very much Frankie, like Frankie's, you know, you do ga- you do gag writers' rooms where you're pitching gags for a punchline for a bit. And Frankie, you sit and talk, often quite bleakly and in quite like bone crushing depth about the end of the world or the Hadron Collider or stuff. And then but Frankie, you don't write jokes with Frankie most of the time frankie writes it all out in longhand himself so you'll chat away and he'll something will spark to him and he'll start writing things down and then it's it's kind of all very much authored through his brain okay but it's fascinating and he's brilliant so i love it yeah i can imagine that and so is it is it then a unique experience with each stand-up or comic that you're working with when you're, yeah. when you're writing material they've all got their own different processes yeah they've got their own process and like the whole, there's always that thing where people think, oh, you know, stand-ups have got writers, they're not doing it themselves. There's, and it's always a bit of a lie, that, because you do, you you know, there's just a reality that if people are on telly and they've got to generate so many minutes of television each week, like a tour, if someone does an hour tour, they'll hone it, or an hour and a half, they'll hone it over a year, and then obviously they'll do the same set every night. They're not yeah. making it up from scratch. And so people go, oh, they've got right. Look at the writers list on that show. And you go, yeah, but it's all predominantly them. But you're kind of, you're just generating stuff that they can process a bit quicker. And you will write jokes that they'll take, but you'll also give them ideas. And and I think Frankie's probably the most abstract version of that model where you're not pitching jokes to him. He has a very particular way. You know, you've heard his stuff. He has a particular, you can't, you don't really write in his style. You You just kind of, it kind of becomes a cloud of things. And he, 
cherry picks and makes it his. But then other people, you might, you pitch, with eight out of 10 cats, you pitch jokes about Susie Dent. You know, that's, that's what you do. And then, I don't know, when Lee and I used to write stuff for his stand up, we used to, we had a very particular method. We'd sit in a room and kind of slightly, this goes, it's a long time ago, but we, our favorite method was getting a pile of like magazines from everywhere. And then take turns and we go pick a page number and a corner. So you go like page 12, left, bottom left corner. The first thing you read there or saw there, you then both go and write for 10 minutes on any material. And then you, after 10 minutes, you read it to each other and invariably go, well, that was shit, that was shit, let's do it again. And you do that for eight hours. And at the end of the eight hours, you might have a couple of minutes of worth of material that Lee would then try out possibly that night in a comedy club. That's a great approach. I haven't heard that before. That's, was, that's sort of like quite improv led. Well, kind of. But it was just it was just going. You just need stimulus the entire time. Yeah. So we'd write stuff, and we just go. If you sit down and go right, let's write some stand up. Like, like where do you? If you open a magazine at that point and go, here's an advert for a bath, a stand up bath. Then you've got a starting point, whether it's a sketch or a, we did it for sketch shows as well, but we did it for stand up, and it would just be anything. And then there might be a line within one of our bits that is not related to that. And you go, that's funny. And then we both then talk about that and try and build that up into something for 20 minutes. And then we move on again. That sounds like a And it's quite, it's quite like, you know, workmanlike. You just go, we were quite into doing okay. 10 till 6 and just doing 10 minutes, 10 minutes, 10 minutes, 10 minutes, 10 minutes. And So does that take some of the joy out of that process? Not really, I don't think, because there's always that thing that, it can be quite tiring, like tiring, not like real tiring, be quite tiring within it, the constraints of what you're doing. But yeah. it's also, if you make, you know, the great joy of this job in whatever form it is, if you make the person, the person you're working with, you tend to think is a funny person. Mm. So if you make them laugh, then kind of your job's done because you can never guess what the end result's going to be and how that's going to land. But when I'm working with people, like if I make Charlie Skelton laugh, I'm happy because that I think it's hard to make him laugh because he's heard everything. Mm. And so, yeah, so it's not, it was quite a, quite a productive way of doing stuff. And we were, we're quite hard workers. Having sort of, you know, done writing and producing, EPing and so forth, do you prefer writing to, to producing EPing or do you like them both for, for different reasons, different things? Um, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Like it always feels like everyone, it always feels a bit, impostery whatever you're doing like yeah i like i really like writing when it's going well and i really like ep and when it's going well i really like producing when it's going well but it's, it's never going well <laughs> so do i don't you, like any of it do you still do you still get that like do you suffer from like imposter syndrome oh after? totally but you, so of course yeah that's kind of not crazy to me but so interesting you know someone like you've done so many shows you've had so much experience yeah, but i've had no success like this is whole thing you just go but you always like you're always judging your success by like the people around you you go like jesus i can the amount of shows that have gone to a second series is like tiny <laughs> but you count you co-founded like one of you know the six most successful tv production companies in the uk yeah, that's, but that's like that. That's very kind of you to say so. But like, is it, right? I was there when it happened. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you're just being a Buddhist now. No, I don't. Like, I honestly think there's, I don't, I, probably, there's probably why there's an element of, I don't think I've done anything. Okay. Like, honestly, I, I'm not being like a, or maybe I'm being a prick. I don't know, but I'm not intentionally being a prick. No, no, it's the opposite. I, <laughs> yeah. I don't, um, I, you just go, 
you know, I don't, it's how you quantify what a success is. Like I've had loads, the, the more I do it, the more I realize the best bits are the bits when you're, when you're enjoying the process and really yeah. having, we're so lucky that I'm in a job that when it's going well, the end result is laughter. Yeah. Like it's not a byproduct. I've worked in jobs where you do anything to get around the job by trying to make your friends laugh because the job's so shit. Mm, but mm-hmm. when the job end point is laughter and it's working, you go and you feel like there's a little bit of alchemy there. That like that's a massive privilege. I mean, without wanting to sound like a cheesy dickhead, I mean that in itself is success, isn't it? Having yeah, a career well, where you can is, do that yeah. on a day to day basis. But I think you can do that. That is success. But I think for certainly, you know, we're in a in the industry of absolute psychopaths <laughs> who judge success by am I doing better than the person I'm competing against. I think that's the the kind of irony of not just comedy, but telly is that the veneer is entertainment and everyone's getting on. Yeah. And the truth is it's a really like nasty business. Is it still? Do you you, you feel that? I say it's nasty. Is it a nasty? It's quite, well, the problem is there's lots of big rewards and there's big people, there's ruthless people who will, when there's big money to be made, people will make big money. I think there's always been a, like telly's a weird one where there's lots of creative people and lots of business people and they are opposite ends of the spectrum. And trying to do both is a clumsy business. Yeah, because the people who make the money will be the people who make money. The crazy people will be the people who are on some level exploited for that money. But you kind of pretend that they will get on, I think. Like I might be talking shit, but I think, I think that's, that's a conflict in all creative industries, isn't it? Like, yeah, yeah that's, totally. That's exactly how it works in the music industry as well. Yeah, yeah. Same thing, record label owners and artists. Yeah, 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 yeah. And there's like a 1% of the artists that do really yeah. well and the other 99% yeah. that, are, that don't or are fucked over or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I'm also realized that I've done very well out of it. Like I've managed to have a job for 20 years and being at Zeppelin was massively soft that I had a regular wage coming in. And the fact that for a a very long time, we were a group of people who were on the same money in the same room made, did make us kind of slightly bulletproof because naturally there's a divide and conquer in creative industries. Yeah. And we were lucky that we just weren't one. They go, well, I don't know. One of them's coming up with this shit. Which one is it? <laughs> they go, we're not saying. <laughs> so it kind of helped, I think, for a long time. And we all were on like, decent money. And then, it, you know, as you get older, it does become, you do have to grow up a little bit, I suppose. Yeah. And did you have any ambitions uh, to try and make a pop edit out in the US doing what you're doing no. over, over here? Did that not interest you at no. all? No, not really. Was it different? I mean, I guess it's it, it slightly different there. It's like, feels like, you know, whatever, like the internet has made the world a lot smaller now. And so in yeah. essence, you don't even need to go there necessarily to, to yeah. you can create shows over here that are then sold over there, which they did back then, but it feels like the gap is bridged a little bit now. Yeah. There's, there's loads, I've got loads of mates who've done that and done very well out of it. And right. I'm a bit, I'm a bit socially awkward, if I'm honest. I don't think, I honestly go, I can't imagine like, like even at the moment, we're you know we're making guilt, and there's a talk of whether we we're going to go and pitch it in the US and that stuff. And it slightly fills me with dread. <laughs> if I'm really? honest, to just go, oh, God. Like, but then I think that might be. I think I like you know my ambition is waning in a positive way. I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. And on the writer side of things, how yeah. have you dealt in the past? If you've had experiences where you've received notes from someone who, let's say, might have a different creative vision or interpretation yeah. of your project that you're working on 
Yeah. How have you dealt with notes in those circumstances? Um, notes, I think notes are like the amazing part of our work. Like I've so when I left, not going back to me, when I left um Zepatron, I started a company called Happy Tramp with the director Ben Palmer, and that's still running now. And we have the same kind of attitude to notes that we really welcome notes from good note givers. And I think sometimes you just go really quickly, you go, if someone's going to give notes, there's often, it's often a thing where someone will give you a note and it might be a bad note, but we tend to think even if it's a note that we don't agree with, if they've offered a solution, the fact they've pinpointed an area means that there's something to look at there. Yeah. So I, I really, well, like I, I tend to give lots of notes, but I don't give like, you know, you try and give respectful notes. You don't try and write something for somebody. You kind of go that, that thing there, and it's always character. It's always like, why are they doing that? And why is that not quite ringing true? Why is that not quite hitting it? Or this story thing doesn't, we're just, you can feel that that's been put in there to kind of put a sticking plaster over a thing that doesn't work. So I'm like a big fan of notes. That being said, bad note givers just drive you nuts. And you have both, right? So it's, it's, mm. it's kind of not the note, it's the, it's the quality of the note. Yeah. But no, it's always hard because if you, as a writer, if you write something, there's nothing, there's no greater feeling than writing something and finishing it because writing's horrible. And when yeah. you finished it, you want everyone to go, yeah, it's perfect. Because the last thing you want to do is go, yeah, all of that bit in the middle that you cried over doesn't work. You have to do it again and do it better. So there's always that, that you want, you want somebody to come back and say, I've got no notes. Brilliant. Well done. And that's happened once to me on a project that I'm currently working on, and it might mean that it's rubbish. <laughs> or the note giver has gone, like, there is, I don't even know where to start with this. Let's just not bother. Let's just pretend it's brilliant. Or <laughs> due to lockdown, they just don't have the energy. Yeah, they just the go, yeah, it's great, great. Well done. Yeah, you go, yeah. really? <laughs> and there's definitely something wrong in there. Yeah. So, yeah, so notes. I'm a, I know there's people get, the worst thing is people being precious for precious sake. People mm. giving notes for notes sake are a pain in the ass. And people being precious. As in writers. Yeah. Yeah. Because, and you, you know, and I totally get the kind of energy and sometimes arrogance of newer writers going, I've written this thing Mm. and it's going to break all the rules. Mm. And they said, give you a thing and you go, yeah, the problem is you can break all the rules, but you can break all the rules a second time. On the first time, do a thing that adheres to all the rules because that's really hard. And trying to break all the rules often means you haven't learned the rules. Yeah. And so I think, you know, you get... Sometimes you get, often get a thing, I don't know, get something where you get like friends of a friend say, oh, you know, the guy's come out of college and he's written a script and he wants someone to read it. And often, like most people, you get, they don't want, some people don't want script notes to be told where it's going wrong. They want someone just to go, yeah, you're brilliant. And so that's a hard thing because you go, yeah, I, I can give you notes, but the notes won't necessarily be, this is a work of genius because mm-hmm. no first draft of anything ever is. But I think when you're new, it's quite hard not taking notes. People go, no, well, that's all rubbish. I'm going to leave it as it is. You go, great. Well, leave it as it is, but good luck with it because this is a collaborative industry ultimately. And there are people paying for it. And the Mm. people who pay for it have a say in how it's going to end up. Hello, sorry to interrupt in the middle of this insightful conversation, which I'm enjoying, I'm sure, just as much as you are. But I need to give you guys a little reminder. Uh, If you like this conversation, this episode, if you like balancing acts in general, then please do subscribe to us, rate and review us because it makes the world of difference. And the more reviews we get, the more rates we get, the more people can discover the podcast and we can make it go viral, whatever that means. Okay, back to the chat. 
And for writers who are trying to push in and get their first break in a writer's room, from your perspective as a production company owner, how do you go about or what makes you decide to take a punt? I'm not necessarily a punt, but bring someone into a writer's room where it might be their first experience in in that setting. Uh, to be honest, we haven't we don't do anything with writers' rooms. So, like, I work with writers who write scripts, okay, and script edit a bit, but we don't we don't do any. Like, I suppose writers' rooms are for bigger dramas that we don't do, and panel shows that obviously Zeppotron did, but we don't do as Happy Tramp. And I don't know how you get in, to be honest. By the time we were doing that on Zeppotron, there were much better people who were finding people than us right? to go. So you suddenly have like, you know, people have come through the writers' rooms. There's, it's such a weird old guard because there's not, there were, there used to be a lot more shows, weren't there? Or my, of those kind of gag writing things where you could cut your teeth, like 11 o'clock show and then going on all of those shows that were, and it doesn't feel like there were that many now. So okay. a lot of those writers' rooms are still staffed by the same eight or nine people yeah. who are now in their late 40s, early 50s, which is all a bit sad, really, I think. But, well, good for them. They've got, you know, they make a living and they're really, really, really good at it, which yeah. is the other thing. They've yeah. got these muscles that are so honed. Um, but then you get people like, you know, James Farmer? No. He's a guy who's a, he's a stand-up who was he worked in production and then ended up, there was a thing, there was a kind of, there's often a role in a writer's room where there's someone who's the scribe who is taking everything down. Okay. Every time people are talking, they're just, you get a joke and they write it down. And so there's a kind of log of the day. And also, nothing gets lost. And also, kind of slightly sneakily, obviously, the production company is keeping a check on people doing writing stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But that, that space in that room has often been a springboard for people to then become writers. So I think James Farmer did it for a bit, but he's now a writer. He's like one of the younger, for me, younger generation who is in all the writers' room. He's a brilliant joke writer and he's also a stand up. Um, and then, like the stand-up Sophie Duker, who's now has been on New World Order, was it was was that role in the room for a couple of series? So it's me, Charlie, Frankie, and her, and then people would kind of come in on. There's people coming like every day or every other day or something, but it would gen- generally be the core of us four. So that's one way of getting into it. But now I don't know how you get into. Like I haven't got a clue. Like I suppose that there's a performer writers or a, a way into the kind of gag writing rooms. But it doesn't feel like, I don't know, like I don't, it's not really my world. Yeah. And then longer form narrative, you know, I'm working with a few new people today and it tends to be stuff that you've, I've, I've worked with a few new writers programs like BBC New Comedies program and you can oh, yeah. mentor people and that's okay. been really good. And I've met some people through there. I, I just, we just did a pilot with a guy called Bryce Hart called Beep, which was, we've just shot, which is a half hour um, kind of hospital comedy set in a, just in a private room of a hospital with the the kind of patriarchs uh, in a coma, and it's all that it's all about all the family in this kind of purgatory. So it's a very kind of gentle, small thing. But he wrote that through this program, and I've read that and just go, God, this guy's an amazing writer. So you're kind of quite lucky, you kind of chance upon people. Mm. And there's a couple of other things that I'm working on with people at the moment that you kind of get through. Often, someone has spotted something online, someone more diligent than me, and has gone, "Have you seen this?" And then you kind of go, "Oh, let's try and." come up with an idea yeah so, um, okay. now you're you're running your production company happy tramp after having gone through sort of that process of you know you've been running zeppertron and then as you said it became more grown up hmm. did you decide then to set up happy tramp because you wanted to have more fun running a production company or did you just want ownership again i just i was just really really seeking much more stress 
Okay. Well, Hence them becoming a Buddhist. <laughs> I needed something to kickstart the Buddhism. So I thought, yeah. why don't I put myself in the most stressful situation I could yeah. find? <laughs> now, I, the truth is, I've been like, uh, I've been at the Sepatron for like 12, 13 years. Yeah. And with those guys for four years before that. And I was just slightly going, I just thought, oh, my God, I think I might end up dying here. <laughs> I don't want that to happen. And it might be next week if I don't leave. Um, no, uh, so I, we did a sketch show and I was execing it. And it was a weird sketch show that there was loads, this is kind of drawer full of sketches that me, Peter, Ben and, and Charlie had written that had never gone anywhere. They're all quite weird and a bit didn't fit anywhere. And Channel 4 were doing some kind of... Um, it was some kind of anniversary and Shane was there at the time and blessing me. We went, we went, we've got these sketches and you went, well, why don't you do a special for this thing? And so I was executing it and then Ben Palmer came on to direct it and then I was meeting producers and I suddenly thought, what am I doing? Like, I really want to work with Ben. I'd written quite a few of those sketches and I thought, I'm just about to give it to somebody else and they're going to go and make it and I'll go back into this room and try and come up with ideas for another panel show or something. So I thought, oh, I'm going to produce it. So I produced it with Ben directing and it was just a two-part thing it was called them from that thing and it kind of came and went but it was there was loads of fun to make because it was again it's a really stupid idea we were trying to make a sketch show that was like eternal sunshine of the spotless mind so every sketch like a wall would fall out and then you'd be in the next sketch and it was all trying to do it all in camera in the way that that film did but obviously meant that the sketches couldn't be moved around and all of the benefits of a sketch show were completely thrown out the window it had to be this order before we shot it and it was really expensive. There was no, there was no like, we're going to go back to that sketch six times. So it was like stupidly expensive sketch, which is why they didn't commission a series of it. But it was really good fun. And then I just started talking to Ben. And I went, well, do you want to try doing something? And so we set up Happy Tramp and that was the plan. And then also the plan was for me to concentrate on doing scripted stuff because I've done so much entertainment stuff, which is what Zepatron was kind of, it's, you know, it's, much, it's a much better business model having would i lie to you eight out of ten cats i don't know uh the ranga nation all the other shows they do you know, frankie's show like those returning shows uh, are much easier once they're up and running to have as a business model rather than we're going to try and write a new scripted show and i thought well i've had all of the comfort of being at endermile getting mm. a regular wage so who wants that when you can live by the seat of your pants with no money and try and get a scripted show around. But the truth is also I did the absolute opposite where we've got a tiny, tiny, tiny company now, which is basically in terms of full-time people, there's two of us, me and the head of production. And so our cost base is now so the opposite end of most companies. We're, We're like a kind of, I would say we're a bit like a terrorist cell that if it all goes wrong, we can clear out an office space within about 40 minutes and no one will ever know we existed. And so because of that, we can exist on far fewer shows and we've got no great, we didn't start a company to go a five-year plan, we're going to sell it to somebody or there's no one to want it. (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't sell it to ourselves. Uh, So it's a kind of model for a little cottage industry of making stuff as and when. And then I do lots of freelance stuff. Ben does lots of freelance stuff. Um, And it all kind of fits in around each other. So it's a bit, it's a bit less, I don't have to report to anybody. Yeah. As a result, I've got no one to go to for money. And because you are 
you know, you got quite nimble in terms of you haven't got loads of overheads, etc. Was that part of your thinking behind relocating to Scotland? Uh, no, that was more just a bit of a breakdown. It was just we just like, read the point. You just you, what you had enough of London and yeah, I think so. I tried. I about just before I left Zepatron, I remember one January, I, I enrolled on a beer brewing course in Sheffield okay. for like two weeks, and I yeah. went. I took two weeks off. I went up there, and I was living in this really bad travel lodge, like. On not it was a travel lodge on top of a Weatherspoons, and it was it was like January, and I was going to this course every day with all these blokes who were a bit older than me, who'd all been kind of got taken voluntary redundancy, and there was on the second week I think I was uh, I was shoveling hops into a vat in this little farm in like freezing weather, and a bloke turned to me and went, "What happened with your job?" I went, "Oh no, no I've still got my job." And he goes, "What well, you got? I work in telly." And he went, the fuck are you doing here? And I went, oh, yes, good point. <laughs> so I went back. <laughs> I thought, oh, I've had enough of telly. I'm going to start brewing beer. And that didn't work out. And I was going to move down to the south coast and I found this plot. Oh, God. And we went down there and like it was just, that was that was a bad idea to move. But then a few years later, me and my wife were on holiday and we went for a walking holiday up here and went, God, imagine living up here. And then it became a kind of joke. And five months later, we put an offer on a house up here and just decided to give it like a couple of years and see what happens. And how are you finding it? Yeah, it was four years ago. I love it. Like, I'm so, so pleased I did it. It was kind of running away from telly, to be honest. I thought, I wonder if I can, the whole, and I was on, I was on planes a lot for the first couple of years because I was traveling up and down and from Inverness airport, you can fly down in like an hour and a half and uh, doing lots of work in London and then coming back. And then my plan was over time to do less and less flying. And obviously now with covid and everything else and zoom and everything it's it's kind of the normal model so hopefully as and when things do revert to some modicum of normality this will still be my life um and we were really lucky we came up here and we did a couple of urban myths and stuff and uh and then me and neil forsyth went to bbc scotland to pitch guilt and uh and so then it became it became like a proper i remember the day before we went there i thought oh shit i've got to have a scottish company so i registered happy tramp north online the day before so i could walk into bbc scotland and go yeah I've, i'm a scottish company now. that was that was quite quite handy although even that right it's, i didn't do any research and going for a meeting at the bbc is a four-hour drive from here because i'm so far north it's like going for a meet it's like living in ealing and going i'm just going for a quick meeting in leeds and back this <laughs> afternoon but it's like nuts it's so far out of the way and uh-huh. what point did um you get into the buddhist lock uh, uh it's funny, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I listened to um, an episode uh, yeah. of the podcast. Uh, I can't yeah. believe it's not Buddha. And you were referring to the book, The Power of Now, as, as that sort of being a, a yeah. starting point, a launch pad in terms of it, because yeah. it's quite, there were obviously like religious aspects to it, but in a way there is sort of like a general secular feel to it. That yeah, doesn't yeah. feel that, that overly point? threatening. It doesn't yeah, feel totally. too threatening, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. There's no, there are no robes or bells in that book. No, exactly. Go. And it's just a weird little German fellow with a strange voice when you hear him on the audiobooks. You go, this doesn't, this isn't what I'd imagined yeah. that would be. Yeah, no, well, so that was Lee and I had talked about doing podcasts for ages, but never wanted to do something that we weren't interested in. We didn't want to magic up Lee and Neil talk to you about lawnmowers because we're not interested in lawnmowers, you know. Yeah. Um, and then we'd both been into it and we'd both given up boozing. And that was all, but you know, all of that stuff in retrospect, giving up drinking moving to scotland was all a, i was fortunate enough to be in a position where i could work from work remotely a lot of the time 
And so all of those things going, I don't, I'm searching for, definitely searching for something more or something different to this. And as I've got older, I've got better at doing things on a whim because doing things on a whim is no different. Planning is bullshit. Going, you know, in five years time, I'm going to move out or do that. You go, well, if you can do it now, why aren't you doing it now? And only because you're scared, right? And I moved up here and definitely probably had a bit of a breakdown when I got here and thought, what the fuck have I done? Hmm. But still... I knew that I'd do something. And so that was all part of the same thing. The Buddhism thing, I've been, I don't know what, how I started, but I've been doing like the Headspace app. Okay. Which a lot of people kind of found, find, don't they? Which is, yeah. And I've been doing that on and off for like six years. And I can't remember why I started that. I know that I tried to meditate when I was like about 15. I bought, got a book from the library and did it in my room and thought, I don't know what this is. And I didn't, and just felt odd and stopped. So there was all like going way back. There was some kind of yeah, thing. some pull towards it. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah. and then five years ago, definitely giving up drinking was part of that. And Lee was kind of, and we weren't even talking about it, but we were kind of doing it at the same time. And now and again, I go, oh, I'm doing this. He goes, oh, yeah, I'm doing that. And so we'd recommend a couple of things, but then it would come and go. And then after I moved up here, I just found, and even then, it wasn't when I first moved here, after I got here, I went on a retreat. I started meditating a bit more and it just started to kind of snowball a bit. What was the yeah. retreat that you went on? I, I've been on like, well, there's all, I don't, I, because I talk about them in the podcasts. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really careful to not name anybody or anything because okay, I'm, yeah. I'm the idiot in it. But I right. do say things that aren't like in the podcast. I, I, on the last retreat I went to, I talked about, I was weighing over my head. So I went to this retreat and it was in between lockdowns. And they had also suddenly one of the retreats open said, oh, we're taking people for this weekend. I thought, oh, great. I've gone on this retreat. Turns out there was three of us that had invited and just the six people who lived there. So these normally they'd have 15 people but because of COVID, these blocks that held like five people each, they just had one in each. So it was us at their place. And they said, oh, we're just going to like meditate for like, eight hours a day and I'm used to doing 20 minutes a day so day one I was like it was like my mind was blown and I talk about on the podcast the first probably the first four hours is me talking about getting pins and needles in my penis when I was just in a position that I couldn't see and I just didn't know what to do myself I thought I thought how is this out? right and it just so it becomes those are the stories that I mm-hmm. that we do on the podcast but as always I don't particularly like naming the places because I feel yeah. a bit like you know but yes, yeah, so I've done a few of them. I did an online one a couple of weeks ago. What sort of impact or effect has, has it had on, on your life as, as a whole? Like massive, a massive impact. Yeah. So you're a Buddhist, right? Buddhist, yeah. Buddhist, yeah. yeah. Buddhist, yeah. or Buddhist or Buddhist, 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 yeah, Buddhist or Buddhist. Yeah, Buju. Buju. Yeah, I've not heard that one. That's good. I'm a Buju. Um, yeah, I would uh, reluctantly. I, I, I describe myself always um, when I talk to people about as a bad Buddhist. Right. Well, yeah, but there's no good and bad. We know that. If you're Buddhist, you know you're just saying that as a kind of just to make it easier for them. The, the, you're just sugarcoating the pill for them, right? I'm a bad Buddhist, yeah. but that yeah. means like I don't know. I feel like I think there's different ways you can get into it. Yeah. You know, some people get into it just purely, as you were saying before, about curiosity, mm. and uh, you know, it can progress from there. For me, I feel like if I don't do that, sort of. I'd go off the rails. I need something like that to just keep me keep me steady. Yeah. You know. So what do you do? Do you meditate every day? Yeah, I meditate every day. I realised two days ago. I was like, I need to do more because at the moment I find I don't know about you. If I do like 20, 25 minutes a day, all that is is maintenance. That's like just you know, it's like an MOT. It's nothing more. Yeah. You're not really going that much deeper. Whereas when I when I do an average like forty five to an hour, yeah. where's that like when you go on a retreat? 
your mind yeah. just feels like it's oh. been completely upgraded. So where have you been on retreats? I can say because I yeah. haven't. Um, uh, them off. I haven't say them off yet. Yeah, <laughs> I went. I go to the moot. They're called Tree Ratner. Yeah, yeah, Tree Ratner. Yeah. So that's that's where I've been. Okay, <laughs> well, we might have that's seen each other. Guys. One of my first ones I went to. They did at the time these sub thirty five for thirty fives and under. And I, oh, I, I wouldn't have made that for a this long was, time. This was back in the day. And then um, <laughs> I um, I went with a friend of mine who I guess I would describe as a bit of like a Cole Pilkington type figure. Right. And we got there and and everyone's in the dorm, similar to actually what you what you and Lee were talking about in terms of Lee not wanting to be in a dormitory. We got there yeah. and he's, he, he took one look in there and he's like, nah. The following day, we're all sitting there in the in the retreat room. And I look up him and there's a fly buzzing around his head and it's sort of very quiet. And he just went and just <laughs> swatted and killed this fly. You know, just at the moment, we're talking about loving uh, and, and not harming all living beings. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was a good, it was, you know, it was one of those experiences. But that aside, just, I don't know about you, just have this moment. You're just like, oh, okay. This is kind of a thing that I have been subconsciously looking for. And, hmm. and uh, it's just like, I'm trying to think of a good, of a good analogy. It's like going to a car wash, isn't it? Your car comes out nice and clean. You just feel hmm. completely yeah. revitalized after. Yeah, totally. Totally. And I think it's a thing like for, for me, and like you know me and Leah are a kind of similar thing although I've probably got into it a bit more than him recently it's the kind of thing once you've started it you're kind of on that road unless you have some kind of anti-epiphany where you go it's all bullshit which I don't think people tend to I think you go oh no this is I can suddenly see a different motivation for everything I'm doing a different kind of purpose and all that other stuff all the ambition and all of the kind of wrangling becomes less important really quickly or it has yeah. done for me. Yeah, no, for me too. Sometimes that in itself is um, challenging. Because, oh, yeah. do I want to lose? I don't know if I want to lose my ambition. Yeah. Well, no, yeah, I know. But then you go, I think that's, you know, I'm a bit older. So I suppose it's a natural, it's a, it's a natural bell curve with it anyway. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I think I think it's it's quite annoying for people around me who are going, oh, we're pitching this project. Go, yeah, if you like, you know. <laughs> but... I find it massively liberating. It's all mm. liberation, isn't it? And now I've yeah. got, I've gone through that thing. So I start, we started with um, Eckhart Tolle and the power now, certainly for the purposes of the podcast. Yeah. We've been kind of focusing on that quite a lot. And it's a really weird one, our podcast, because I do all the email, we get emails in and I respond to all the emails and there's definitely a kind of, I don't know how many people are listening to it, but a, a proportion of them are blokes who have gone, I've kind of been looking for this kind of thing, but everything's so po-faced and, you two dicking about and it's a kind of makes me feel like I'm not the only one who is slightly skeptical about it, but Mm. also wants to be part of it, you know? Yeah, for sure. There's those people, but there's also people who go, can you just stop doing dick jokes and get to the point? Cause Mm. all you do is interrupt each other. And so it's a weird balance where we're kind of doing what we're doing anyway, but how deeply we go into it. And I'm probably, well, both of us, but at the moment I'm probably more into it than I kind of am on the podcast. Yeah. You've got to play up to that character to a certain Yeah, so there's a bit of that thing of going, oh, you know, I like, I go to oh, I just watched another Ramana Maharshi film. We should talk about that. And he's going, oh, like, calm down. We haven't done the Four Noble Truths yet, you know. Yeah. And that kind of thing where you're just going off and I've got massively kind of seduced by non-duality. And I don't know if you've had any Rupert Spearer and all of that stuff. Rupert Spearer? No, I haven't actually. Oh, man, Being Aware of Being Aware is a great book. Okay. I really recommend. And that okay. all goes back. And then his kind of idol, like everybody is 
peddling something that already exists, right? So Eckhart yeah. Tolle is telling you nothing that hasn't been said before. Sure. Rupert Spear is doing nothing. And there's always something that we're always kind of butting up against is the kind of industry of mindfulness and Buddhism. And, it is a massive you know, industry. The tea towel. They've all got tea towels, right? Get your Eckhart Tolle tea towel. It's the kind of where you get to. Yeah. And you're releasing another book that's saying the same thing. Mm. That's commerce, right? Like even like I got into yeah. Wim Hof and all of that stuff, the breathing thing, which I oh, think yeah. is brilliant. Did I you love do the cold that. showers? Oh yeah, I do all of that. Yeah, I do the cold showers. And yeah. the problem, the problem with all of this stuff is, and this is the kind of joke at home, is that my daily routine is insane. I have to get up to <laughs> yes, that's the thing. Up at four in the morning. Yeah, and then you're breathing yeah. for like <laughs> half an hour. Then you've got a cold shower, and if you want to do some exercise, and then if you want to do it a bit in the evening, it's like I've got a family, right? You yeah. can't just go. I'm going off for another two hours now. Please don't interrupt me. Yeah, and it's almost like if you do then go on to have a shit day, you're like, oh, yeah, what, what else can I do? I've had, I've had five hours morning routine and I'm still yeah, not feeling yeah, great. Yeah. yeah, and then, I don't know, yeah. So then, but, but I think great. it is great. And going back to think about ambition, although, yeah, it um, you might sort of like loosen your, your grip to ambition at the same time, I think that is is definitely healthy, but from a creative perspective, I've found, I'm mm. um, sure you're the same, that has had a positive impact in, in that respect. Yeah. Well, I think, but I think there's a, the creatively, it's always best when you're in, in the process and not worrying about the future or the past, right? It's the same yeah. thing, like what they call flow or whatever. Flow state. That yeah. thing, of, yeah, where you go, if I'm, when I'm writing something or I'm, playing some music or I'm doing something and I'm in the moment I'm creating it that's the best bit that's the and so the problem with when you're doing it as a job is you're going you're worrying about whether someone's going to like it or commission it or recommission it or what the figures are or you're worrying about your last show didn't do very well so maybe people won't you'll go down in their estimation all that stuff that's all bullshit but from a Buddhist perspective the making of the thing is the Buddhist moment because there is only now and all of that yeah there isn't yeah. there isn't that old show it doesn't exist and, and nor does you, that future one no exactly yeah. yeah nor does nor does the tv the tv is just made up of all the individual exactly. parts that make the tv but there's not even a tv there yeah non-dualism we're not we're the same thing like we're pretending to be separate entities and we're not even separate entities but then it starts getting like that's when people start to glaze over and go you're right in nut job yeah exactly <laughs> yeah that's why I love the Matrix. That is the Matrix. Oh, is like, me all oh you need to have a chat with Lee. Like he'll talk to you about the Matrix all day long. Watched it the other day just to give yeah. myself a little bit of a, you know, yeah, need it every now and then. Yeah. When you sort of going more and more down the, the Buddhist path, is that did that coincide with you going vegan as well? I'm not vegan. Like Lee keeps telling everyone I'm vegan, and I'm not vegan. I hate fish. <laughs> what he says on the podcast, despite he knowing says that it you're all not. the time. Oh yeah, because we're vegans. Like I'm not. I keep like every maybe third podcast. Like I'm not vegan. Yeah. I eat fish. Um, yeah, but yeah, I went. That I think is probably. I don't know. I probably shouldn't eat fish, but I. Uh, it was more kind of. In the broader sense, it was a kind of environmental decision. I think I didn't yeah. like the notion of eating meat. I don't yeah. miss meat, and I and it's funny, isn't it, how that craving just goes after a while? I used to be massive yeah, meat but it's the same with booze as well. I think yeah, for me, like it's such a weird thing that like I was pretty good at it, and uh, <laughs> and like I definitely wasn't a problem drinker, but I drank loads of it. I was really good, and yeah. and since I stopped, I've gone. God, it's much better without it. Like I have a much better time. I think. 
Well, no, no, I do. That's a, but that's a weird. One. We get quite a lot because there's quite a lot of again, probably predominantly blokes who get in touch with the podcast who go they're interested in the non-drinking thing, and some people get in touch and go. You, you do come across as a couple of really smug pricks when you talk about non-drinking, which again is an entirely valid point. Mm. Um, but that's uh, that interests me quite a lot. The non-drinking thing. Yeah, and it's, I do find it interesting sometimes when people react in that way so viscerally because I don't know, maybe it's sort of like that's triggering something in it within there. Yeah, yeah, of course, you know, of course. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's always your mate that goes, "Have a drink, have a drink, just yeah. have one, just have a drink," and then he's about a week later goes. So how did you do it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly that. So aside from the Buddhism, um, yeah. what, what what have you done historically? I know because we're, we're in COVID, so it changes things somewhat. What, what have you done historically to outside of work to take your mind off off all things career-wise and, and relax and unwind? Um, I play a lot of music. Um, I played in a lot of bands before I left London. Uh, up here, I go swimming in the sea quite a lot, which I love. You, they're cold water swimming yeah like i say it's cold water it's, it's scotland so uh... yeah like it's properly cold water. <laughs> yeah. yeah um i do it in a wetsuit like I, I do i think i'd die if i didn't have a wetsuit on but um i like doing that i like going like i like just going out i like one of the reasons we came here is because we just like there's so much if you're into kind of wandering about there are mountains and beaches and forests everywhere around here so you can just drive like you can drive 20 minutes in any direction and end up in somewhere you've never seen before and you'll probably never see again, you know, because it's just so much. So I love it. So yeah. I'm, a, I'm kind of, we moved up here, got a dog, and I'm just really into wandering around. Do you, is, it, is it challenging creating a social life there? Or did you already know people? I haven't, no, we didn't know anybody, and I still don't. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> you like no, it? That's not true. No, <laughs> like my wife's really good. She's really social. Okay. And I'm really social with people that I have met, but I don't tend to go and I'm really happy in my own company. I can go for weeks without leaving the house. Okay. And like I've got, you know, my kids are a bit older. They're 12 and 15. So they're like as much company as I need. Like they're like yeah. kind of, we watch films together and we play games and muck about and we all get on. So I'm, I've got like, a, I have got mates up here, but not like I've got like a handful of mates that I've met over the, over the, few years but yeah. i was never massively social beforehand so okay perfect then. i'm i'm really lucky that it's made very little difference to my life yeah yeah sounds it um are there any books that you've read over the years that have had a impact on you in any way doesn't have to be industry related um oh what's his name uh story um by i know you mean had a real impact on me i can't remember his name i'm a big steinbeck fan but i don't think it's a big influence on me other than that they're just great stories yeah uh I was a massive Hunter Thompson fan when I was younger, but not work-wise, nothing really. And now I'm just reading. I'm getting recommendations. I've got a really bad habit of every time someone emails, uh, I can't believe it's Buddha, and with a recommendation, I immediately order it. So I've got about, I've honestly got about a hundred. Like this, uh, there are so many books, right? Every time you, like someone goes, oh, you should read Alan Watts. Someone says, oh, you should read Mahana Maharshi. Oh, you, have you not even seen this yet? And you just go, god so uh you're not enlightened by the end of that reading list you're gonna yeah and they're all say the same thing i think that i think it's a really weird thing that the more i read them generally because we talk about this a lot this thing where you go if you read a buddhist book you sometimes in the middle of reading the book you go oh this is it right this is totally nailed it and you go i've got it and you put the book down and the next day you go what was it 
Yeah. What was that thing? And I think it's because, you know, at the heart of a load of that teaching is you can't intellectualize awareness. You can't intellectualize being. And so the moment you try and think your way through it, you're going to always hit a block because it's beyond kind of thought. And so I think what happens is you read the book and while you're reading the book, you get the emotive response, which is being, mm. but you're tying it to what you're reading. So then when you put the book down, you go, I'm trying to remember what I was reading. And you go, it's not about that. That thing has just broken that emotion open. You don't have to remember what was in the book. You just have to recall the emotion you were feeling. And that's awareness. That's why. So I think actually you read loads of books and they're kind of like drugs. They're almost immaterial what's in them as long as they're in the vein of. Yeah. Yeah. It's like self-help books. Yeah. After a while, they're all saying the same thing. But the challenge is, uh, as you said, it's like digesting the intellectual interpretation of it. But also then I always find I have a week or I might have however long it is where I'm, you know, doing loads of meditation every day and yeah. I feel like, you know, I feel present, etc. Yeah. But then suddenly that just goes completely like all over the place. And a week yeah. later, I'm just, I've got a complete lack of awareness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm being pulled in different directions. Yeah. The challenge is, is just maintaining it. And yeah. I don't well, even know that's, that's part possible. of it, right? The clouds yeah, are part, part of it. it. Yeah, for sure. And I, that's that thing when you go, when you're mental, and so many people have that thing, going, oh, I can't stop these thoughts in my mind. And it's such a challenge to new people when they start managing, they think they're doing it wrong because you go, oh, I keep being told to focus on my breath. And then I'm thinking about the washing or punching my neighbor in the face or whatever it is yeah and you go no but that's it that's, that's the, it. Yeah, that's the, that is the meditating being yeah. aware of that and almost being annoyed at it initially is the yeah. meditating yeah because you're engaging with it and you engage it so and so it's hard because i'm exactly as you sometimes i go oh god i've been a week of feeling so kind of centered and in the moment and then a week later i go what's happened to me you know like five things have happened that have all turn the screw a little bit and I've got, but you go, Oh, you know, but this is it. The fact that I'm, I'm asking this question is the same thing. It's yeah. all the same thing. Conditions obviously help. You could have the perfect conditions. I'm sure your conditions right now probably uh, are helpful to you rather than being in London. You're now in the sort of um, yeah. in, in amongst nature, but that aside, you can be in the perfect conditions. You can go on a retreat and you might feel like you've, I've really uncovered something here. You know, if I've had a certain yeah. sense of awareness, but inevitably, once you come back, you're in the real world. And you're never going to yeah. escape that unless you are literally living in a cave in the Himalayas. Yeah, yeah, so there's yeah, always yeah. going to be that challenge. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it, mate. I'm what are we doing? What, what are we doing? doing? What are we doing? <laughs> you're right. Me, I'm, I'm in bloody Hackney right now. Doesn't matter. Makes no difference. I, I'm saying what a privileged prick. Doesn't matter where you are, he says, sitting in the mountains. Um, <laughs> no, but uh, ultimately acceptance isn't it it's all acceptance yeah yeah that it, it is and that's uh that in itself is a challenge yeah uh, it yeah. is but it isn't <laughs> <laughs> this is, have you read a uh, zen mind beginner's mind i don't think i have that one has popped up quite a few times in conversations but i haven't read that i've heard it's fantastic and it's great because it's the most annoying book like it is it's it encapsulates that thing of going it's all or nothing and you can't think your way through it and just do it yeah. and don't do it it is like it's a koan idea as a book okay. and once you get through you go to, everything is zazen you know cutting your toenails is zazen if you if your mindset is right yeah um yeah and 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 about it's it's it puts up so many dilemmas there's always, there's an end bit of the book that drives lee nuts where it goes it's something like in the morning there's aubergines and in the afternoon it's cucumbers or something like that right. it's not that but it makes no sense yeah and you go 
I think that's the point. I think the point is there's no sense to be got from this. Mm. And I think you, it's stopping thinking, right? The the great irony is that we're, we're reading these things to learn how to stop thinking. Inbuilt in that is you, you're using your thinking mind to process what the idea is. Yeah, I guess. And then with the hope that it will just start festering and then yeah. you, you start becoming aware in a way where you're not necessarily overly aware. You've made it sound like a fungal infection. <laughs> I have. I was thinking that as I said it. <laughs> really festers. <laughs> yeah. The opposite to, to enlightenment. I think there is a danger of it all that you can get a little bit Woody Allen-esque with it. You know, you could go overly neurotic with it to a certain yeah. degree. Yeah. If you're not careful. Yeah. Like totally. But I think that again, it's the, it's the central, uh, what's the uh, word contradiction of it that in actively seeking it and thinking about it, you're making it harder for yourself. Like there are points that I, I think this, I found real, really found some solace in the thing of going, Oh, not thinking and being quite inert is quite a good natural state. If I can get through a whole day without think like without giving a fuck about anything, they're just sitting there just going, oh, it doesn't matter, it? And it's almost, it's almost like a, being a pensioner, I suppose. <laughs> and I just go, oh, yeah, I'd had a good day today because I didn't really engage with anything because there's nothing to engage with. And I go, what I did engage with is I saw some, like I literally saw, uh, went and saw a beach that I liked. And that's like, because I've got that to, to see, right? But then yeah. there's parks, all those things. But not engaging with things, I think, is, is the key. Mm. Uh, it sounds like giving up, but it's not, I think. I'm getting no. better. I do think I'm getting, I might be going in a kind of upswing at the moment, but I do think I'm, I'm really getting better at it and I'm really enjoying it in that kind of calm way. Would you say, or has your friends noticed a, a difference in you since you since you got into it? Or do you think like, it's one of those things where it's such a gradual process? You're not going to, it's like if someone sees you, you haven't seen you for five years, they probably see a noticeable change yeah. compared to someone who you see relatively often. Yeah, I don't know. Like, like I say, I haven't got that many friends, so it's hard <laughs> of course, to quantify. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, like friends that I haven't seen since I came up boozing will know it's a difference, but that'll be the boozing more than anything exactly, else. Probably than else, yeah. But um, yeah, no, I think I think so. I think like you know, the only person that the only people that really care what, what they think of me is my family, and they they seem to tolerate me, and I don't seem to I seem to be winding them up a little bit less. So that's a good barometer. Yeah, I think we're we're like, but I think that it's weird because me and my wife gave up drinking at the same at the same time, and that's that was different. Well, it, I don't think it would work any other way. So I think you're on. That's all. That's a massive problem with that thing when people say about giving up drinking. We were like a boozy party family, right? We had a lot of, like I had kind of an open door people around our house the whole time. Okay, and so if one of us had given up, it just wouldn't have worked. It would have just been we we're in different gears the whole time. So it's yeah. lucky that we both did. Do you not miss that? And, no, no, I really don't. I really don't. I always remember, like, like start drinking at like half eleven on a Sunday when I was starting to cook something. When people coming over and because I was like, a lot of people played instruments, they'd all bring them over, and I had this basement in this house. We'd all play in the basement. It was great fun. Yeah. I always remember kind of fighting the booze in my head from about half one. Okay. I also, that feeling of going, oh, and I just drink stronger and stronger stuff to try and, <laughs> to try and kind of keep it going. But you just go. Oh, I'm just the clarity's gone a bit, and I'm trying to focus on playing something or cooking something. And you know that feeling when you go, oh, I've had like four glasses of red wine, and I'm a bit groggy now, and yeah, I'm trying yeah. to, and I just don't miss that. Mm. And at the time, I always thought, oh, I like we're gonna come out, we're gonna have a party on Sunday, it'll be amazing. And I always remember being at like one, two o'clock, thinking, oh, I'm a bit groggy now. Mm. Push on through, get absolutely hammered. That'll sort it out. 
<laughs> um, and you know, and I tell you what, I, I, if I never ever hang over for as long as I live, that'd be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can relate. Um, final question I'm going to ask you is, um, what does the idea of balance mean to you or not? Um, I think it means calmness. I think that's, I think that's what balance is. I think it's without, I was slightly reticent to feel like I'm bagging on, but I think it is, that's, it's awareness, right? It's being, it's the witness, all of those things that you discover in Buddhism. That's what it all is. That's what, that's what it all is, right? So balance is just calmness. And whether that means not getting angry, not getting overly excited by anything, because that will pass too, not getting um, stressed. And it's easy to not, to say not get stressed, but actually, Behind it, all, all those things are going to come and go, and the calmness is still there beneath it, and that's the balance. And it's that's the way, that's the direct, the direct path stuff. This is all that Ramana Maharshi stuff, where it's the idea that enlightenment is in some uh, traditions is like six lifetimes away, but the direct path goes. No, 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 it's there now. You're enlightened. You can be aware now, but then it's how once you've discovered that awareness, it's turning back. And applying that to your life, you don't have to spend six lifetimes searching for awareness or the knowing or whatever that thing is. It's it's what you are, and it's just uncovering that, and that's the calmness. So that's balance, I think. And I realise I sound like some kind of evangelist at this point. No, that's a superb answer, um, <laughs> guys. Uh, thank you, Neil. Uh, it's been great. Thanks for having me. No, thank you for for coming on and uh, giving me your time. Really appreciate it. Um, I enjoyed it. I know you are you are more of a behind the scenes kind of guy, but now you obviously you have the the podcast. Is that the best thing in terms of people to check out? I can't believe it's not Buddha. Like it's literally the only thing. Okay. So it's really easy if you want to avoid me. It's really really easy to do. So. <laughs> <laughs> but if you do want to see it, see it, hear it, yeah, that's it. Can't believe it. I don't know how long we're going to do it for. We might have finished now. We will do a bit for a bit longer. So you reach enlightenment. Well, that's already happened because I found a yeah. direct path. I've just, I've, I've reached awareness. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just nurturing it now. Yeah. Well, cool. just, yeah. Until you get reincarnated to the next life. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. totally. And well, then we'll do it again in our, in our next forms. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Cheers, man. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 